0: Hey, I'm Dr. Brett McCabe, and welcome to the Stripe Show podcast. This isn't Travis. This is Dr. Brett McCabe. And I'm going to come on probably three or four times this year and share with you the mental side of the game, much like I've been doing on my podcast for probably the last five, six, seven years, a podcast called The Secrets to Winning, where I have the opportunity to interview people and share insights of some of the best performers in the world. I'm a clinical psychologist. A sports psychologist, a former college athlete, a national champion, and I work with a lot of national championship coaches, including Coach Sabin at the University of Alabama, and many other coaches across the country. I also work with many tour players, including players like the number one player in the world, John Rahm, Billy Horshall, Sam Burns. The list goes on. But I'm not gonna talk about them because those are my clients. But there's a lot of lessons that I've learned over the years that I think is gonna, I think it may help you as a player as a coach, as a fan, or a parent to help you get the most out of your game. You know, the mental game should not be this mysterious world that we live in. It doesn't have to be filled with, with, you know, motivational quotes and and really soft science-based stuff. Instead, we can actually look at things that we do on a regular basis and find those secrets to winning that leave clues. It's not that hard. Been around the best of the best played for a coach that won five national titles in 10 years. I'm working for a coach that's won six national titles in nine years. That's a lot of winning. And what does it really take? Well, today's podcast, I want to talk to you a little bit about, about the mental health side. Now, when I say mental health, it's not necessarily meaning you know, where we have problems. If I take a look at the mental game, and when I spend time with people on the mental game, it's a full continuum. It goes from where we're really, really struggling to where we're performing at our best. And I think a lot of times when we think about the mental game, we try to separate those two sides as if they're two distinct areas. And they're really not, right? I mean, if you were a physical athlete and you were, you know, going to hit golf balls and you had a physical limitation, that made it very difficult for you to move through the impact zone to swing the club the way you wanted to and to perform at the levels that you want. You know, we we've seen some amazing work from the guys at Titleist Performance Institute TPI, Dr. Greg Rose and Dave Phillips and the entire legion of TPI that have helped resolve some of the maybe movement dysfunction that you've had to help you play at a better rate. Now imagine if we did the same thing on the mental side. We don't have to look at it as two different You know, domains where if you're struggling in one aspect of your life, doesn't mean you can't perform. We just need to understand the mental game in a better way. And whenever I start with clients, you know, I I sit down and I try to understand who they are as people, just like you. You're unique, you're different, you have your own ways about going, doing things. And a lot of that's influenced by how you were raised, your early experiences, and some of the thoughts and theories that you have according to your own game. You know, we, we take a look at performance and we're talking about the smallest differences between what the greats do and the average on their tour. But those indicators are the same even in our levels. I love to play. I play every weekend, a couple times a weekend. Love to play little money games and have some fun with my buddies. And there are times that I am as mentally poor as I could possibly be. I want consistency and I want to hit the ball the way I want to every single time. And I want everything to go my way. That's what I hear from my clients when they call me. I need more consistency, doc. I need to play better. I need to play better more often, but it's not even feasible. Right? So I think a lot of times what we have in the mental game is unrealistic understanding of what in the heck is going on. Like we're not even close to what's real. We have this idea that it's going to be this perfect environment, this nirvana, where we just so locked in. And look, people have written books for years about the zone or, you know, what is it? The Golf in the Kingdom, where you have this magical moment. And, and we've taught for years of people trying to get back into that zone. What hogwash? doesn't exist. The zone happens. You get in a flow state. Yeah, that's wonderful. It happens. But even my tour players, when they have it three to four times a year in a day, they get frustrated when they can't recreate it. So a lot of times we're talking about mental performance. We're dealing with unrealistic, unrealistic, uninformed understanding of what it takes. Now what makes golf unique from every other sport out there is there's really no competitor. Look, there's a myth that I've heard a lot, which is you compete against yourself. Oh God, no. Cause you would never win. You would leave every day as a broken down competitor. Why do you want to do that? Why do you want to be the person who's the broken down competitor? How about we go out there and compete against a golf course? A puzzle, an obstacle course, a challenge site—something that is always different. And you and I can go compete against each other and have pretty similar skill sets, and have two widely variable outcomes. And what makes this game so mysterious and magical is that it is so unpredictable. Look, I can line up two two teams in the NFL and they're going to be stacked with NFL players and they may have advantages at different position sets, but there are indicators and there are positions that can help create equity amongst the teams. It's not like college football where the bigger budget programs have the biggest opportunities, but golf, there is no, there is no advantage every single time out. What we see are great players playing well for a period of time. And something always changes in fact, professional golfers go on streaks, and so one of the things that I do with my players out there is I help them focus on two major things: I want them to stay patient enough until they get on a streak, whether it 's in a round or in a season, and I also want them to make their average better because PGA Tour players win and they earn eighty percent of their income in about five events a year now we look and think they're all consistent because we watch television. We see the best players week in and week out. Well, if you watch it on Thursday and Friday, they're always going to highlight the best players because they want you to pay attention. But over the weekend, they move to the leaderboard and they'll still show the best players, you know, the, the, the legacy players, because they know it draws eyeballs. But the reality is you're only seeing the players that are playing great because if a player at the start of the leaderboard on a Sunday gets out of the gate and is two or three over par, they're never going to show them again. In fact, they may become limping into the final hole and they're doing a trophy ceremony, essentially interviewing the new winner, right? They've moved on. And yet you and I as players think that we should be consistent and never struggle. Look, I get calls all the time from parents. I love working with parents. I'm not saying this in a negative way. I love working with parents. One of the factors is they feel that the amount of work, investment, skill sets, that their kid, if they struggle, is a sign of a breaking down foundation. And they may struggle two or three times in a row. But what many times don't realize is that the foundations of success are being built through many of those struggles. And so it's managing those expectations and redefining the foundations of what success is all about. You know, the middle game is going to be based on two major factors, Okay. Number one is who you are. As I said earlier, your, your, your psychological fingerprint and how you function on and off the course. And I'm gonna come back to that in a minute. And also what is, what are the mental performance indicators, skill sets, uh, tools that you utilize to optimize the level of play that you have that day, that day with that swing and those fields, not overall. Right, I get asked all the time from people it's like, well, "What do the best players in the world do?" Struggle, yeah. They are scraping it around, trying to find it. But I can tell you from the players that emerge and get in the top ten, top fifteen in the world, they're competing week in and week out in events where they become great. Is that they can separate a little bit of the drama off the course from on the course, and they can find the best they have that day and get the most out of their score that day. Because what happens during a competition, we're not lining up and competing against our best every day. Not everybody has their A-plus game every day. There's a wide variety of level of play. So you go out there and you go compete. And if I maybe start off and I've got my C game in the first five or six holes, and i mail it in mentally and I get frustrated and angry and just throw up my hands and walk off the course and I'm yelling and screaming, I never give myself the chance to get into some sort of a little bit of a rhythm, even if it's a C plus rhythm. But the best players in the world, what they do is that they take those skills that day and realize that it's not predicting the future of their future performance. They're not looking at today going, oh my God, I can't ever play now because I'm struggling with hitting a healer off the tee. Or I can't read the greens and my speed is off. But players that struggle with a consistent mindset are the ones that call me and say, oh my God, I putted terrible today. Give me some drills that I can go do that will fix my putting. The best players in the world go back to what they do every single day. And they realize that there's variation that happens. Now, that first bucket, first factor of the mental game who you are mentally and what's your psychological framework, who that is often allows that on the course to perform. Now, let's take a look at that, right? We're going to talk about mental health for a second. Now, I don't want you to zone out because you don't think we need to talk about this. There's no time ever in our society that we've needed to talk about this more than right now. As I'm recording this in 2022, we're launching this today on Monday. Was that J- January 16th? 17th? What was it? 19th, 18th, 17th, right? I never know the date. As we're launching this, we have been in, no doubt, two years of some of the most difficult and stressful scenarios that we've ever had to go through in our society. Now, I'm not comparing what we've gone through to world wars, famine, um. Goodness gracious, the atrocities of World War II or other atrocities across the world, 9-11. But to the experience of stress to our society, we've never seen rates this high. Because what happened with COVID is that it impacted us in every facet of our life and attacked the one aspect of who we are as humans that helps us the most, and that's social connection. We've had to socially isolate and put up barriers to prevent ourselves from transmitting or whatever, right? I'm not getting into the science of COVID. I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm a health psychologist. I've spent many years in medical settings working with medically ill patients. I'm going to leave that to other people. But what I do know is how you cope with medical illness, how you cope with chronic disease. That's actually what my background as a clinician is all about. So I'm not outside my area of competency here. This is actually my area before I got into sports where I jammed a lot. And I think maybe being a clinician is what's helped me the most with my athletes. I'm not just a motivational guru. I've actually been in the trenches working with patients across every perspective. But what we've seen because of COVID is it's rocked our psychology. We are seeing rates of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, increasing at rates that are really unprecedented across just about every age group and demographic in this country. I'm not going to talk about worldwide figures. I'm talking about in this country. And when you add in the unknown stressors of financial and job and health, ooh, we've, got, we've got really a power storm building that's not good. We know that, right? One of the things that was wonderful in this country is that golf was protected. Unlike for many people in Canada, where golf was seen as a, I don't want to say banned or prohibited activity. And some of the, uh, my clients in Canada have said in the United States, we saw golf boom because of COVID because it gave us a place to go. And I know personally in my life, my club, we played a hell of a lot of golf during that time because for many of us, we couldn't do work. I was still working, but, I didn't work as much because I wasn't going out on tour every week. And I wasn't going to my university of Alabama obligations. So it wasn't unlike us to go play golf on a Thursday afternoon. So we played a lot of golf. We saw a huge increase of members at our club. Completely unexpected, right? None of us expected that to happen in COVID, but the mental health side is true. And I saw it even with my professional athletes, they were worried, stressed, scared, They carried bigger burdens. They put more pressure on themselves. And as a result, those psychological fingerprints of who they are, right? Their entire life, many of them have sacrificed things in their lives in order to be successful at their sport. They've done things and worked hard to be successful with their families. Many of them have partners that have helped them and are very influential in their performance success because they take care of stuff off the field. You see that a lot in coaches. But now, the players that used to go on the road and they would kind of give a little bit of a separation with their family, they're up under each other's heels all the time and it caused more stress. We know that activities or dangerous activities or risky activities or violence has also increased across this country. Motor vehicle accidents have increased. So, what we've got is we've got a pressure cooker. Now, does that even happen in pro sports? Heck yes. Look, 10 years ago, when I started, well, let's see, I finished my training almost 20 years ago. And I remember calling my coach, coach Skip Burtman, who at that time was the athletic director at Louisiana State University, LSU. What an amazing institution, right? Go Tigers. I roll tide now. I'm all about the Alabama Crimson Tiger. That's where I work. Those are the people I serve. But I can go back to my alma mater here for a minute. And I called coach and I said, yo, coach, listen, I know that athletic department budgets are tight. They'll always tell you they're tight, no matter how much budget surplus they have, right? Nobody's, nobody's ever sitting on their bank account and going, man, I got more money in my bank account now than I ever have in my life. No, they're always thinking about it's already spent. It's already gone. They don't know where it's at, right? And so they're, so I call them and I say, hey, coach, listen, you need to put a psychologist on staff. And look, I kind of know the guy, right? I was on internship. I was up in Rhode Island at Brown. I, was, I didn't want to be an academic. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to be with sports. And I said, coach, we've got an issue with our student athletes. They're hurting. They need services. But many of them don't know where to go. And his answer at the time was, Brett, look, we've got people that we send them to. And I said, but coach, as a player, no one knows where to go. Like I actually taught people out on the side myself. My parents sent me to someone to help visualize and understand my game at a higher level. And it helped. It's what put me into the field of psychology, but I had to leave class to go do it. I kept skipping one class and ended up making a D in that class, which was a very difficult class. And it wasn't something I should have done. But at that point I wanted to play and I wanted to play my best and it it worked out and, I dropped out of that major after that and I switched to psychology and the rest is history. But I asked him, I said, Coach, you've got to serve these people. He's like, Brett, look, it's a lot of money to put a psychologist on staff. There's really not a return on investment. We're just kind of making sure people are okay. Now, what he was saying back then was absolutely the standard. That wasn't anything out of line with what anyone else was doing. I mean, that was what was funny about that was, I mean, We had athletes who were trying to cope the only way they knew how to cope. And for many athletes, there were two very bad ways of coping: social isolation and withdrawal, or substance abuse. And so what you would see are athletes with very high rates of substance abuse or dependence, you know, they get hooked and they would cope in a really ineffective manner. And what most athletes do is if they're not going to cope in those two ways, they immerse themselves in their sport so much that they ostracize themselves, they separate themselves from everybody else in their lives, and they become one-track-minded people, which is great for their sport. And athletes fall into this, much like business people do, that if I can get successful uh, in my domain, if I can get successful on the field, then the rest of my life should be great, right? And it's not, I've seen athletes who have won Super Bowls and get depressed. We know Michael Phelps, the greatest male athlete of all time. Right. Can't argue that. Nobody, nobody will pass his records. Okay. There are other men up there and women, I think Simone Biles, Serena Williams, um, you know, list could go on, right. I'm blanking on some of the other great female athletes, not because I don't know who they are just because right now I just can't think. And, uh, and so, Even he suffered with depression. I talk about that in my book, Break Free from Suckville. If you haven't picked it up, I would highly suggest it. It's a great book to deal with what we're talking about today. And I'll come back to that in a little bit. But Michael Phelps talked about feeling depressed. And I actually had some time, I spent some time with him. And not as a client, just at a party. uh, We were celebrating um, John Rahm's uh, US Open Championship and we were having a chance and he and John are really close friends. And so, um, look, I I'm fanboying, right. And I'm like, I'm gonna go speak to Michael Phelps. And all I wanted to talk to him about was his mental health advocacy, because I know what he's done in the field to raise the, raise the awareness and to give a platform for athletes to share about their mental health. Now he wasn't the first and he won't be the last, but he was maybe one of the loudest voices. He talked about coming out of the Olympics and he would invest in himself and he would immerse himself so much in his sport and, and trying to swim the best and hunting the next challenge that when the challenge wasn't right there in front of him, he spiraled out of control and he would go into a dark place. He said, those are his words. And he had to learn over time. And I think his wife and coach and people around him have been brilliant support for him to help him understand that that's not a sign of weakness. That's not a sign of being flawed. That's just a sign of maybe the same level of energy it took to be great creates that same level of absence and vacuum. And it's not there. And so as a result, he had a bigger, wider dispersion. Well, we've also seen from things like, the players Tribune or uninterrupted online resources where athletes have now really gone on a very high frequency state. I mean a lot of gone out there to say, hey, I am struggling. I've dealt with depression. I've 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 dealt with suicidal thoughts. I've dealt with alcoholism. I've dealt with bipolar disorder. And this is the way that I've worked through it. Like I said, being a clinician and also doing this sports work. I get a lot of calls from athletes who are in that that moment. They don't know who to turn to. They often are so afraid, particularly if they work in organizations, or they're a a member of a team, particularly if they're in a contract year, that the owner, the general manager may look at them as damaged goods because they have a mental health issue or concern. And yet what I have found is that if those organizations move on from them, we usually get them in a better spot where they flourish because they focused on their mental side. Because the whole reason I bring this up is it's really, really difficult to perform at your best when we're struggling away from the game. You can do it for a period of time. And yes, I know there are athletes out there who who have performed very well with very disordered ways of thinking. A lot of problems, and I know that. Look, we can look back to the '60s and '70s and the '80s in sports. The '90s, we can look at substance abuse in sports and say, "See, Brett, I'm telling you, those guys—they could—they could segregate, they could separate it, right? They can compartmentalize the on the field, the off the field, but it always catches up to them. It either destroys their families, destroys their personal lives, or eventually catches up to them on the field." And I'm not going to name names because that's not my job, but we can watch the news. And, and part of the problem is the way that our society responds to mental health issues is not the same as we do to somebody who has a bum knee or bad back. Like I've I've helped players medically retire with bad backs when it was 100 percent a mental health issue, right? I mean, it's just it's easier, it's more accepted of people going, oh man, I, that sucks. Your back went out on you. God, you were doing so good. And really, really the issue was that they had an underlying mental health issue that they needed to address, but the back gave them cover. So imagine trying to be at your best competing against quote, the world's best at whatever sport, even in your business life that you're sitting out there, you're working at your best and you're competing, giving it everything you have. But you have to leave your drama at the door. You can't do it. It's impossible. You can't compete when your mind races to things that you're fearful of off the field, off the course. So what do we do? Right, In order to go to the other bucket, the other domain of human performance, and understand that it, it has everything to do about being at your best in that moment, when that shot demands it of you, what resources can you summons over time that if we're losing some before we ever get there, we're competing with less than hundred percent of our capacity. And that's kind of why the mental health side is so important. Now, a lot of us use golf as an escape. We want to get away. We see it as relaxation. We see it as a fun place, but once we're in the heat of the moment, We want to play our best. Let's go sit in the 19th hole of your own club and guys will get done. I'll say guys as men and women, guys will get done. Men and women will get done and they may have a drink afterwards. And there's 80% frustrated people and 20% happy. And it's just those numbers switch every day of who is the happy and who's the unhappy. So you increase the odds of frustration the inability to respond to challenges or use that word consistency, okay? You you limit those chances of being successful because mentally you're not in the best frame of mind. Because let's talk about the other domain of mental game, which is mental performance, to optimize the way we think, the way that we concentrate and focus in the heat of the moment. You know, if I were to look at certain factors of what that took, let me, let me take a step back. I have a formula that I use for success. I use it with every athlete across every sport, but in golf, I want to highlight it for you. See, the first aspect of success is that you have to have a certain ability level talent. Like I know for me at 49 years of age, my talent and skill set could not go out and run on a hundred meter track against Usain Bolt. It's impossible. And when I was playing baseball at LSU, my skill set was good enough to compete in the Southeastern Conference, the top baseball conference in the country, but it wasn't good enough for me after some injuries and really being just not that talented to start off with to compete at a higher level. Like I I would have loved to play in the major leagues. I would have loved to have a 15 year career playing the game that I loved every single day, but my skills and talent just didn't allow me to do it. And we have to work on improving that like when I play with players and I go out and play with my colleagues or I go out and play with friends or I watch other people play, I mean, I can look, I'm not Travis or other swing coaches that who can look at him and say, okay, look, your swing is going to produce this consistent result. You're going to hit a weak fade every single time because this is how your body moves. And you can look at certain people and go probably not the best hand eye coordination or the best movement in space. You know, if I, if I've got a, If I've got a former college gymnast, they know where their body limbs are in space at any given moment. They've had to for years as gymnasts. They have to know where their body is. If I'm working with a baseball player, right? And I'm sure Travis can attest to this, but when I'm working with a baseball player and we're working on hitting it, hitting the golf ball, there's a certain movement that you usually see in baseball players that's pretty consistent. A lot of speed, but their kinematic sequence, right? Use the fancy terms tends to look a little bit different and it creates some challenges. So when they hit it good they hit it great, when they hit it off they hit it way off. You compare those two from skills and talents, that baseball player may be more athletically skilled than some of the players on the tour, but those players on tour are better. Look, you can take a fighter pilot, right? They have to sit a, they have to be a kind of an, in an ideal size window, ideal weight window, but also have a lot of high-end uh, cognitive skills, visual skills, hand-eye and motor movement. I can find those same skills, but somebody who's six foot nine, 300 pounds, they can't fly in a fighter jet. They're just too big. Their skills, their talent, their body's type doesn't fit. And so when, when we look at players in golf and we say, look how good they are in this, that's the ideal. There is no ideal. There's just a range. And, You've got to be able to put the center of the club face in the ball, you know, behind, you know, hit it, hit the ball there consistently. You've got to be able to hit where you're aiming for the most part. You've got to have certain skills around greens for you to get the ball up and down. And when I watch tour players, what do they do really, really well? Their short game is insane compared to us. It's the biggest separator, but on tour short game doesn't separate them that much. It doesn't separate them from their colleagues that much. Because everybody out there has a really elite short game. So we know statistically what separates them or tends to be shots from the 175 to 225 range. I would say that the wedge game tends to separate certain players. Putting inside 12 feet, 15 feet tends to separate players. But some of the things that separates them from us doesn't separate them within their own performance band. But we have to improve our skills and talents. That's why you should consult with your local PGA professional, your golf coach. You should go and take lessons. You should get on a regular plan. And you should also eliminate the idea of fixing swings. You're not fixing anything. You're working to train and improve. If you go out to train in golf, this is what makes golfers the worst practicers in the history of sports. Golfers train to fix problems. Other athletes train to get better. Big difference, because the second factor of success is how you take those skills and talents and apply them under increasing levels of pressure. Oh yeah, wait. You think uh, E nine after work is it the same as playing in your club championship, which is the same as playing in a qualifier, which is the same as trying to qualify for a professional event, and is the same as being in the final round of a major. Not even close. Not even close. So stop thinking you should play the same or hit the ball the same as you do when there's no pressure. Pressure impacts us across many different factors. It impacts you physically and how you move. It impacts you how you think mentally, psychologically. It impacts you in your decision-making. Do you get more conservative or aggressive? Do you play away or play towards What do you do? And it also impacts a major factor that we call resiliency or grittiness. And that grittiness helps us stay in the fight. But that's why most of the time when we get in trouble, when we're playing bad, we usually play worse under increased pressure and we get more frustrated faster. And as a result, I don't say we quit but we get exacerbated a lot faster and we just almost get to a point of not caring. The third factor is what helps this, which is mental flexibility. Your ability to adapt, to adjust, to work through things, to hit a bad shot and accept the outcome. It's a big factor. I work with my tour players. Can you accept? Well, let's look at this. Can you be mentally flexible? If you're struggling off the course, If you're getting phone calls from your boss while you're out there playing, if you're having a fight with your significant other, if you're struggling with depression or anxiety, it attacks our mental flexibility. That doesn't mean we're easygoing. You can be the most dogged personality and the biggest fighter with a bone in their mouth as anybody you've ever seen, and you can still be flexible. Flexibility is the ability to reset and refocus with the attention on the next challenge and leave the drama behind. The best players I work with are mentally flexible. They're mentally flexible. Doesn't mean they're not emotional. Worst thing in golf, you should not be emotional. Shouldn't show emotions out there. Give me a break. You're a human being. Now, we don't need to be helicoptering our 7-iron down the fairway. Or bearing our putter head into the, the green, that's BS. Okay, you don't do that. But if you hit a good shot, you should be excited. Well, if you hit a bad shot, you should be frustrated. The difference is when you hit a great shot, you're excited. Boom. And then your mind goes, I gotta hit the next shot. But when we struggle, we go, God, you idiot. Why do you always do this? And we make it personal about ourselves. We make it personal. We attack ourselves. We we make it more dramatic. And I think we do it because we want to beat on ourselves a little bit, but also we want people to know that we're not that bad. But then we fight for consistency. Consistency doesn't exist in golf. Dealing with average B game exists in golf. So if you're flexible about looking at your B game and realizing that Hey, you know what, today I may be hitting it off the toe a little bit, but that's okay. It's still going towards the target. And, uh, you know, I can accept it a little bit more. You can be flexible. The last factor of success with all my athletes is luck. And you can go out and play, and one or two shots will dictate the end of a game or end of a, a round for you, which you're going to shoot. It's the same conversations we have with our football players at different universities, is that a football game is going to come down to three to four pivotal plays. You won't know them ahead of time. In fact, you may think, or the announcers may say, this is the moment of the game. Uh, It happened the play before. A fourth and three was set up by the third and 12, where they got eight or nine yards and got it within running zone and gave them more options. And so for those players, they need to be set and ready for whatever's going to come their way. I mean, I'll tell you, I'm not going to call out the play, but watching the national title game between Georgia and Alabama, Working for the University of Alabama, which you can see behind me if you're watching the video of this, I've got some championship rings and stuff up there from them. There were a couple of plays that when they happened, I texted the guys I was watching the game with, you know, we were across the country from each other, but I said there was one of those pivotal plays. It just changed the entire dynamic. And I was right. It wasn't the block field goal. It was the play that happened in the play before that and the first play of that series on that down series. I watched it. So there's luck, there's a good bounce, there's a ball that you're hitting out of play and it hits the side or hitting in the rough and it bounces in the fairway. There's a time when you hit a shot and it hits the front edge of the green and it releases to the hole. There's other times when you hit shots, you hit it right next to the hole and it spins off the front of the green. And you're like, I hit that, I couldn't have hit that any better. That's right, you hit that one better than ever. That's the luck, that's the randomness of the game. Okay, so how are you supposed to deal with that? You're supposed to be mentally flexible. Now, look, I'm not telling you, I want you, I want you to get really good at sucking. No, I want you to get really good at dealing with sucking so that we can focus on one major thing. Are you going to play with purpose? Are you going to play trying to prevent everything that could go wrong in your game? You walk out on the course and you try not to hit bad shots, you try not to miss in the areas, you try not to make the same mistakes, you try not to let old habits die in, you try not to let the things that you and your swing coach are working on not show up under pressure, then you're going to play your entire day struggling, searching for swing, and old habits leaking back in. You have to walk out there with the choice of saying, look, I'm going to go out there and play my best. I don't know what today's going to hold. I don't know. I may have 60% of my game today. And there are a lot of reasons why you don't have all your capabilities. Could be like yesterday I played, I played great. I had just come off of a 10 day work trip in, in Hawaii working with two or my two or players and mixing in a little fun and vacation. I hadn't swung a club probably in two weeks. It was 45 degrees. I had four layers on and I played really, really well. I didn't expect to have my A game. I kind of expected to hit shots that would come up a little short because I couldn't turn. It was cold. It was heavy air. I just didn't expect the ball to go as far. So I, I played smarter. I wasn't trying to maximize what I had every day. And so maybe I played with like 65 or 70% of my, my abilities and maximized those abilities that I had. I focused on things that gave myself the best chance of success. I played to solid numbers. I played a lot to centers of greens. I wasn't afraid to putt from off the green instead of trying to hit, you know, specialty shots off of dormant zoysia, you know, dormant grasses. I just allowed the ball to stay on the ground and run. I played really well. Does that mean I'm going to play well next week? No, not at all. I don't know what I'm going to have. I I have no idea what I'm going to have, but I do know what I will have. That if I'm dealing with stuff off the course, look, self-disclosure, I get pretty damn anxious. I'm a pretty anxious dude, right? Sundays or Sunday nights can be pretty stressful for me. Because I'm you know, worried about what the week's going to hold. Gonna get calls from my clients and make sure they played all right on the weekend. Friday nights are always stressful because what tour players made the cuts and which ones didn't. And so if I'm worried and I can't turn off the phone and go play, I'm not going to play very well. There's two sides to the mental game. You, who you are mentally and what you're dealing with. What you're going through right now in your life. It's a lot of stress right now, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of what-ifs. And how do you maximize and sharpen the tip of your spear in the heat of the moment? Those are tough. What makes the mental game so hard? When I say mental game, I mean the mental game of life. What makes it so hard is we really can't put our finger on it. You could read books that tell you how great you are and never break down from a challenge, but that's not realistic. We find the greatness of who we are through some of our greatest struggles. We don't have to fail, but understanding the rub, the grind, teaches a lot about ourselves. It's just kind of like what we would do homework, right? We'd go home. The first part of our math homework would be very similar to what we learned in class. It was kind of like repeating the skills. Then the next level, usually like items, you know, you do the odds, odd numbers, and you do the odds. And then those numbers 11 to 21 would be kind of an application of those skills in a little different shift. And then God forbid, the 22s and higher were the word problems that just absolutely mind crushed us. Because what it did is it took those skills that we overlearned. We applied them in a new area. Now we applied them with a whole new context and we had to decipher what skills that we had to apply to what the question was and the challenge was. It's kind of like life. We have an understanding of who we are. That's the basics. We apply them in different areas. And then our word problems is our competition. And the word problems, the competition side of life is the most volatile. It is the most uncertain It does demand the most out of you. If you want to hold yourself to the standards that I know many of us do. Now, if you can look at competition and say, you know what? I just want to go out there and and love it and get my heart rate up and experience it. That's cool. That usually only lasts for a period of time until our expectations change. And that is how you get into what I call suck because what happens is as your skill sets start improving, you start seeing better, and you move out of the the world of you you move out of the world of like getting a lot of out of it for fun for you, the intrinsic side, the inside part. You start seeing things kind of like, well, if I do A, I get B. Oh, it's almost like a job, it's an exchange of value. And then you get to the last level, which is all of a sudden, this game is punishing me. I mean, Shoot, life's punishing me too. This is hard. And so, you know, the things that I try to get you to understand by saying this is that when we get in Suckville, where we think everything sucks, we go back to who we are, that first side of the mental game. We understand what we want out of the game, who we are in the game, what we want to accomplish when we go compete to make us better as people. That's how you break free from Suckville. It's an honor to be here. I hope you like what I have to say. If you do, send me a note. If you don't, send Travis a note, right? I mean, I'm kidding. You can follow me on Twitter and social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Brett McCabe. That's at D-R-B-H-R-E-T-T-M-C-C-A-B as in boy E. You can find me at every social media outlet. I don't know how to do TikTok. I like to watch it. Don't know what to do with it. You ain't gonna see me dance. I, I was the guy in college when my wife and I were dating. She would dance with like my roommates who knew what they were doing. And I'd sit on a bar stool and shoot the bull with everybody. So you're going to see me dancing on TikTok. But I love to interact with people on social media. So send me a DM. Let me know what you think of this podcast. And let me know what topics you want. Like I, I'm all about meeting needs that you want. I love talking about the mental game. And my clients are the best there are. I, I, I love watching their successes. I love watching them compete, but I also love watching them be human because it allows me to see that we're all in this fight together. We're all going through our own stuff. It doesn't mean it's disordered or bad. And if we are, hey, guess what? That's why we're all here. It's been a tough couple of years. But as we emerge from this, and we are going to emerge from this the next couple of weeks you watch, when we emerge from this, we're going to be better. We're going to get back to what's important, and that's us, who we are. Got to know who your psychological fingerprint is, who you are. Listen, use golf to understand that. Use golf. So if you have things you want me to talk about, I'm game. But this is Dr. Brett McCabe signing off of the Mindside Podcast here on the Stripe Show Pod. See you next time.